you walk through the automatic doors of the Park Slope Food Cooperative, you're greeted by a volunteer at a computer who looks at you expectantly, waiting for you to hand over your golden ticket, the ultra-coveted co-op membership card. Without it, don't even think about sneaking in for your non-GMO kale or ancient grain crackers. No entry, no exceptions. But what about this glorified grocery store is so special that you need a membership in order to get in? If you haven't heard of the Park Slope Food Co-op before, as the name suggests, it's located in my neighborhood, Park Slope in Brooklyn, which today is occupied by upper middle class families and young hipsters with trust funds. The co-op is almost like a fancy supermarket, but not quite. There's one main difference. The shoppers, the workers, and the owners are one and the same. I understand that might sound confusing, and I promise to break it down later. But to put it simply, the food co-op is an experiment in socialism. It's also a hotspot for drama, and for me at least, a tangled mass of unanswered questions. This isn't only the story of a co-op, but also one of economics, privilege, and what we as humans owe to each other. Park Slope wasn't always the picturesque family neighborhood that it is today. From the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, it was populated by wealthy white families who owned Victorian mansions beside Prospect Park. But in the 1910s, things began to shift. Those same wealthy families flood their opulent homes in favor of more suburban areas in Queens and New Jersey, following the trend of urban sprawl. Eventually, their roomy brownstones were split into affordable boarding houses, which working-class immigrants soon flowed into. Over the next 60 years, Park Slope mostly stayed a quiet, blue-collar neighborhood, but it was only during the 1980s, during the nationwide crack epidemic and citywide crime spike, that it transitioned to what one reporter for the City Journal called, quote, a bleak expanse of drug-fueled violence, end quote. When we moved here, it was sort of generally thought that it was safer and had gone, had become less uh, dilapidated, the neighborhood above 7th Avenue, and that below 7th Avenue, you were taking your chances. Below 7th Avenue is what we could afford. That was Craig Hoffheimer. He's a longtime family friend and mostly retired interior decorator. He's 71 and has a bit of a sassy streak, but he's warm and didn't hesitate to offer me a seltzer when ushering me into his backyard. Also, Fifth Avenue was really, um, I would say, half empty. That was Alice Hoffheimer, another family friend. She and Craig are divorced and have been for almost 20 years, yet they're still next-door neighbors and best friends. They first moved onto this tree-lined block in 1986 and have lived here ever since. If I had never been to Park Slope before... Well, like, I'll tell you, here's something. Okay. Ruth, Ruth, Ruth says uh, that when people ask her, our daughter Ruth, when people ask her where she grew up, and she says Park Slope, they sort of say, oh, Park Slope. And she says, no, not oh, Park Slope. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the Park Slope that you're imagining. Yeah. It was a rough and tumble place. There was a crack, crack epidemic. Yeah. 
and so, and with it tremendous amounts of crime. Our car was broken into frequently. Um, frequently? It, yeah. How frequently? No, I think maybe Well, twice. if you left any, no, more than that. And when you, if you left anything, any package or anything in the car, there was a very good chance by morning it would, the car would be broken into. Yeah. Those, those were times when people put, posted signs in their cars that said they didn't have radios. Mm. And people had radio, removable radios and oh music God. systems. They would take them with them because it was so likely that cars would be broken into. But I would say this too, you know, our kids who were friendly with pe people who were already here when we moved on the block um, reported that they were protected by People. Really? Yeah, that they were hands off th these guys. Just a side note. Alice later explained to me that she and Craig allowed all of the neighborhood kids to play with their own in their backyard. She thinks that's why her kids had that unspoken protection from all of the neighborhood crime. Really, uh, it's almost completely changed. The park slope of the Hofheimers' past is now long gone. The tight-knit, largely POC and working-class community of the 1970s and 80s has been replaced by a largely white one with an average household income of over $190,000 as of 2020. When walking down 7th Avenue, the main commercial strip of the neighborhood, you'll see young parents pushing designer baby strollers and cafes selling $7 lattes. Who, who didn't buy their houses or apartments decades ago can afford to live in this neighborhood. Yeah. People yeah. who are who are bankers, lawyers, uh, that's the that's who can live here. Yeah. This style of gentrification isn't new. Rich people decide they want a fixer upper home, which opens the floodgates to development companies and bulldozers. And the subsequent rise in both desirability and overall rent pushes out families who've been there for generations. Here's Alice on neighborhood transplants. The people moving in are not people I would want to hang with or would socialize with because they're people who have a lot more money than I do and who I think are not as engaged in the community. This is a far cry from the we look out for each other mentality that was so prevalent in the 1980s. Instead of neighbors protecting each other, they feel irreconcilably divided by the class lines that 50 years of gentrification has made so obvious. Is there any way that this resentment over class divides can be overcome? Well, since its opening in the 70s, the Park Slope Food Co-op has managed to survive skyrocketing rents, waves of hipster transplants, and the unrelenting demands of American capitalism. Their secret? Socialism. So, if, if we could start, maybe... Um, Do you want to start from now, or you want to start from the beginning? I think, let's start, we'll start, introduce yourself, and then explain for people who maybe have no idea what the Park Slope Food Co-op is. Okay. My name is Joseph Holtz. I'm the general manager of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Uh, the Food Co-op obviously is a cooperative. 
This audio is excerpted from a 2008 interview, recorded for an audio walking tour of the neighborhood with Joe Holtz. He's been the treasurer and general manager of the food co-op since its founding in 1973, when it was just a cramped couple of rooms in a leftist hangout space called the Mongoose Community Center. I tried to contact Joe to appear in this episode, but couldn't reach him without a premium LinkedIn subscription. So this archival interview will have to do. A food corp is a, ba- a food corp is basically a grocery store that's owned by its members, and that's one thing that all the food corps have in common. Our co-op only has one kind of member. We don't sell to the public, and all our members are required to work. So where- if you're like me, you're confused by Joe saying that the food co-op is owned by its members. But let me explain. Once you become a member of the co-op, you're required to pay an equity investment of $100, or several smaller payments over time, which establishes you as a partial owner, one of 17000 But the specific style of the co-op's communal ownership principle is what truly makes it so unique. It sets everyone on an equal playing field. There's no class system, no division, and the work requirement makes many members feel like their contributions matter which they do. It's true collective ownership of a self-sufficient community where members can rely on each other for support. We were consciously trying to create an institution where people work together and we liked the word cooperation because cooperation to us meant people working together. And we thought, okay, isn't, isn't this great? We could create a success, a community success, a collective success, a success that's shared by a lot of people, not just the success of uh, the dominant culture in our society is we should all work to be successful ourselves. But we felt like there's not enough working to be successful together. Currently, members are required to work a two-hour and 45-minute shift every six weeks. Although equalizing labor requirements sound good in theory and can be fulfilling, some people, both members and ex-members, find the work requirement to be overly rigid. Craig Hoffheimer resisted joining the co-op for almost 25 years. But I would just say in a few words that I thought I was going to find community, old hippie culture there, and what I found instead was some kind of Pol Pot egalitarianism, where it's sort of like loving the rules and being punitive and uh, not a lack of friendliness and uh, I just found the place oppressive, and uh, I do think the food was good, but, <laughs> but, but uh, I yeah. didn't like shopping there. Yeah. It was really obnoxious to shop there because of how crowded it was. Even if the shifts are rigidly scheduled and unforgivingly boring, member labor keeps the co-op alive. Since the biggest expense in running an enterprise is labor, the Park Slope co-op saves big via their unpaid workforce. Without it, they wouldn't be able to toot their 15 to 50% discounts compared to commercial grocery stores. For folks on a tighter budget, that can make a world of difference. Here's Alice again. That's one thing that gets sort of buried by the affluence of a larger and larger section of the community is that there still are lots of people living in this neighborhood who are struggling. And so having the food co-op as an option, I think, is a good thing. While extremely valid, hearing Alice's perspective just invited more questions for me. 
Does a food co-op that champions socialism, equity, and low prices for all even belong in such an affluent neighborhood? Does Park Slope, as an overall wealthy community, deserve to reap any benefits from socialized systems when capitalism has clearly served it so well? Is the co-op still relevant at all? Here's Craig. I would say that I think it's a, uh, you know, it's it's sort of an accident that the co- that the co-op is in such an affluent neighborhood now. Yeah. Oh, because it, it wasn't when yeah. it started, and the neighborhood changed around it. Craig's right. Joe Holtz and the other founders of the co-op couldn't have foreseen the drastic extent of Park Slope's gentrification. All they were trying to do when they started it was give good, local people access to good, local food in the most ethical way possible. But is it actually accessible? The store isn't open to the public, you won't be allowed entry if you forget your membership card, and if you make any missteps while restocking the organic kombucha, you can expect no shortage of dirty looks. Trust me. My family and I have been working members there for almost a year now, and I can attest to the exclusive attitudes that many members have. They just seem to assume that everyone has a ton of time on their hands, enough to work an almost three-hour shift every month and a half. I'm just a high school student, but even I sometimes find my schedule too packed to accommodate the work requirement. I imagine that people who really need access to affordable food may not be able to shell out that time due to work or familial obligations. How is that fair? How does this like reputation of pretentiousness and obnoxiousness just like spring out of nowhere? I think it comes from the gentrification, but I mean, it seems like it's just been a pattern since. They, they have an assumption, as long as I have known about the place, they have an assumption that if that people will take advantage of the place if they can. And and I think that that's wrong-headed. I don't think people will take advantage. I, I was, uh, I had a friend visiting from Colorado with his wife and son, and uh, we we walked around Prospect Park and we were walking back to the house. It took us right past the co-op. I said, I said, oh, this is my co-op. Would you like to see it? And, uh, and they said, sure. So we went in and uh, I said to the person greeting me, but greeting, greeting is the wrong. I said to the person checking my membership card, mm. uh, these are my friends visiting from Colorado. And she said, oh, um, they have to check in upstairs. And I said, really? They're just my friends, I'm telling you. And she said, no, no, there's a process. You have to go upstairs and check them in. So we went upstairs, and and they, my friends said, we're here, and um, we're not going to shop, but we just wanted to uh, see the co-op. And my friend is a member, and he's going to shop. And she said, uh, can I see a driver's license? <laughs> so he was like, he laughed, you know, and yeah. I was I was embarrassed. So he got out his driver's license and showed it to him. Sure enough, Fort Collins, Colorado. She turns to his wife and says, and I need to see your driver's license too. She said, well, we were walking in the park. I don't have my purse. And then, believe it or not, she turned to the 10-year-old and said that she needed to see his ID. 
And he said, I'm 10, I don't carry an ID. <laughs> That's an eloquent response yeah. for a 10 year old. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, I blew up, I blew up. And I just used an expletive that starts with F. And it kind <laughs> of went like, give them the effing passes now. <laughs> and she cowered a little and did. And I think it was a volunteer. You know, trying to follow the rules, trying to do... Anyway, that's why I left the co-op. Experiences like that are obnoxious and demoralizing. This happened in 2007. Greg, after holding out for a quarter century, joined in the beginning of that year and left before its end. Talking with Craig and Alice, it's clear that the original aspirations of the co-op have become... muddled among member-owner bureaucracy. The co-op now presents as ultra-exclusive, which inherently contradicts its original purpose of accessibility for all. But what's the exigence of all this? As a young person, I'm generally surrounded by conversation around the failures of capitalism to take care of people, as well as questions as to how American society can possibly transition to any other economic system. I've witnessed firsthand the burnout that the capitalist work-until-you-die mentality has affected both my loved ones and myself. However, when I try to advocate for socialized systems, I often find myself being scoffed at by people who say things along the lines of, that's good in theory, but not in practice. Just look at the Soviets. That's why the story of the Park Slope Food Co-op interests me so much. It's a story of people striving to work together for a new, better reality through socialist methods. It's certainly not perfect, but the results are impressive, by any standard, even capitalist ones. In fact, the Park Slope Food Co-op estimated their sales to be $58 million in 2019, and is made up of almost 20,000 member owners who flock from all parts of the city to get their hands on artisanal cheese that sells for $3 a pound. Although the co-op's success gives me hope for a socialized future, I can't reconcile the fact that it resides in a neighborhood that doesn't need it. I can't reconcile that management has made no attempt to expand into other communities that actually lack affordable food outlets. The co-op only benefits people who have the time and means to work the required shifts, which paints a pretty clear picture of who it helps the most. But that doesn't mean affluent park slopers don't deserve a socialized grocery store. I'm rooting for the co-op's success because I believe in the power of democratic socialism to help people. And that has to start somewhere. The Park Slope co-op model isn't the best, but its relevance is undeniable. I want the co-op to serve a new purpose, that of inspiring people to work towards a better reality for their communities. And who knows, maybe that will lead to new food co-ops in Brownsville or Coney Island and uplift folks who need it. I hope so. For the Summer Youth Podcast Academy, I'm Layla Azmi. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and archival tape from the Brooklyn Historical Society. Thank you to The Bell and Gimlet Media. And shout out to my editor, Janae Morris.